Desert Island Books on NHR in association with NUH Library Services. Right now on NHR, we have another in our series of Desert Island Books, which uh, is a feature we've been running with uh, the uh, NUH Library Services. And uh, our next guest is one of our very own. It is Edwina Crowder. How are you today, Edwina? I'm fine and enjoying the sunshine, but trying to keep cool as well. So I'm glad you've got air conditioning in here. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I tell you, uh, I've been here 22 years and most of that time it was an absolute sweat bowl in here. Uh, but uh, yeah, we, we're enjoying the air con. Um, but so you don't, you're not a big fan of the super hot weather? Not really. I mean, my skin is sun intolerant, as you can see. Yep, I, I was <laughs> I was born this way. So, yes, uh, and I was born this way. <laughs> Pale and all. interesting. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Um, so um, tell us a little bit about yourself then. And uh, first of all, what, what's your connection with, uh, with the hosp- hospital? Well, as, as you have just said, I'm a hospital volunteer and I have been uh, coming in as a guest on shows sometimes. Um, I enjoy music very much, I enjoy poetry very much, so when I've come in uh, I've chosen music to be played and talked about it and I've read my own poems because I enjoy creative writing as well. And uh, yeah, you've got a lot of strings to your bow, uh, literally and <laughs> metaphorically. Um, you've got a very strong connection with, with music as well. Tell us a bit about uh, your connection to music. Well, I've. I've loved music all my life. I mean, ever since I discovered my grandmother's piano at the age of three, I was hooked. So I eventually trained professionally. I did a music degree at Edinburgh University, um, studied piano, violin, viola, singing, became a music teacher, have done some playing as well. I'm retired from teaching now. I had did it for 50 years after all Uh, but I am still playing um, and I have been developing creative writing because I enjoy that and I'm an avid reader I absolutely love books that's going to be useful (laughs) it is desert (laughs) island books so um yeah and uh you've been as you said you've been a guest on on shows here at nhr uh over a period of time we've we've all had to to deal with the break of of covid of course and uh and you you've you've read some of your poems uh on air as well and uh you've uh we've done some of your music features too um would you say that you um are also someone who likes to still compose oh yes In fact, I uh, wrote something two days ago and I was quite surprised because I've always written for the piano and uh, this time I got my violin out of its case, uh, dusted it off because I'd not played for a while and a friend of mine came round and we, we played for a couple of hours. Neither of us had played for a long time. I mean, the pandemic has affected us all. I mean, music stopped and uh, I stopped with it, actually. And I'm just getting back into it again. So we we both enjoy traditional playing, traditional fiddle playing, that is, Scottish music, Irish music, etc. And when she left, I picked up my violin again, and this tune was just under my fingers. Uh, and it wasn't even in my head. It was quite a weird experience. It was under my fingers. And... Uh, 
I thought, good heavens, and I played it through several times. Well, at least, this was half a tune, actually, to be fair. Right. Half a tune. I thought, I'd better get this written down or I'm going to forget it. And so I did, and then I thought, well, that's no good. It's only half a tune. It needs another half. So I had to think a bit to get that <laughs> together. But I was really pleased. I thought, I can still do it. You know, there's been the pandemic. We all stopped. Um yeah, it did have an effect on me emotionally. I mean, I, you, 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 if you've not done something for a long time, you wonder if you can still do it. So I was actually quite relieved to find that, yes, I could still get a tune out. And this time it was on another instrument. So I'm really happy about that. <laughs> Excellent. The creative juice is still flowing, obviously. Uh, that's good to hear. Um, now, you said you're a, a, a big reader. Um, and uh, that is, of course, very appropriate. It's Desert Island Books, of course. Um, is that something you've done since you were very, very young? Oh, yes. Uh, I love stories. And, you know, I say I enjoy creative writing, and I've only just started to develop it. I mean, the truth was, ever since I was a child, I would make up stories. I mean... Sometimes I would talk to my mother when I was very tiny and tell her things that had happened. And where did she get that from? Well, actually, it was my imagination and she knew <laughs> it. But, you know, I would, I loved stories at school. Um, and then eventually I, I, I like reading them and, and I love plays and drama and school trips to the theatre. And I was in plays, you know, I, I enjoyed amateur drama. Um, so I've always been involved with stories as well. And in the end, anyway, music tells stories. You know, if you play a piece of music, it's telling a story. And very often, when I was teaching children, especially young children, and I was trying to get them into the mood of the music, I would often invent a story to, to go with it mm -hmm. um, and get them to, to try and use their own imagination. And what kind of story do you think this is about? And... So music and stories are one in the same thing, really. Excellent. So are there a particular, is there a genre of, of, uh, of books that you've tended to gravitate towards over the years or are you uh, fairly eclectic in, in, uh, in your reading? I think I'm less eclectic now than I used to be. Um, you know, my books do reflect my interests and also my experience of life and places that I've been to. I'm interested in culture in general. And if you enjoy music, I mean, music is a good way in to finding out about a culture. And the classical music, of Western classical music, you learn a lot about the history of France, Germany, Italy, mm -hmm. where music... A lot of the history of music has developed, America too, and and then if you're interested in world music, then you get interested in world cultures, and then you find books about these things, which is which is really what I've brought along today. That you know, books that reflect those interests. Okay, so uh, let's begin with uh, your first choice then. What have you got as uh, your uh, number one book on the desert island? Okay, now if I'm going to be on a desert island, especially if I don't know how long I'm going to be on a desert island, I want something to make me laugh. Mm -hmm. Especially if I'm going to... Well, it's, obviously I'm going to be on my own, but I also want it to remind me of home. Mm -hmm. So I chose this wonderful 
book. It's in the travel writing genre. And I found it in my local library. And it, they say never judge a book by its cover. But I mean, I ha- when I saw the cover, I had to buy this. So this is by Mark Wallington. And it's called The Uke of Wallington. One man and his ukulele around Britain. Ooh. I thought, I have got to read this. So this is on the front. It's not a visual medium. You might have to do some descriptions. <laughs> and on the back, the musical misadventures of one man and his ukulele. Only one thing has stopped Mark Wallington's rhythm and blues band going on tour, a lack of musical talent. The vicar's retirement due proves to be a gig too far and they decide to call it a day. They are in fact a band called the Elderly Brothers. Mm -hmm. But then Mark discovers an instrument he might just have enough talent for, hidden on top of the wardrobe, the ukulele. Realising his dream of a nationwide tour, the Uke of Wallington sets off on a 42-night road trip playing open mic sessions from Brighton to Cape Wrath, probably the first rock and roll tour ever undertaken on public transport. (laughs) Working his way across the country, he takes his music to the great British people, testing to the limits the theory that you can't hear a ukulele without smiling. (laughs) Lovely. Have you actually played a ukulele yourself? Once or twice I've tried... It is nice that that there there are actually three registers of the instruments. If if you if we equate it to the voice, oh, go on, educators, I'd like to know. Soprano, alto, and tenor, and the tenor instrument. You know, I mean, each one is is bigger than the other. So there's the tiny little one, and that's the one that makes you laugh. And then there's the alto that's got a slightly richer sound. It's a little bit bigger. The tenor is the concert instrument. Right. I mean, you definitely wouldn't play when I'm cleaning windows on that. <laughs> I mean, it's it's sonorous. It's always the one that comes to mind. Isn't <laughs> it? There's so much more than you than that in ukulele music. Well, sure. that's what I thought. I mean, I did go to a concert last year, um, given by the National Ukulele Orchestra of Great Britain, and wow. it was wonderful. I mean, there were seven of them. I thought it was going to be about 20. There were seven yeah. in the band, and they were great singers. And they got together simply because they decided, whatever we do, we're not playing George Formby. <laughs> and honestly, it was a wonderful night, and I bought a couple of CDs. It, you know, they played everything from the Beatles to classical, pop, all sorts of things. And you know, you wouldn't have thought a band of ukuleles could sound like a pop group. They got the, the, the one concession was their electric bass guitar player. Okay. No drum kit, but mm. didn't need a, a drum kit. There was enough rhythm in those ukes. Brilliant. So this and this was another reason why I was drawn to this book. And really, um, the writer is saying the same thing. He's He's not going to play when I'm cleaning windows. He's <laughs> not going to play when I'm leaning on the lamppost. And, uh, but he's going to take his rhythm and blues that he played in his band. And this is the rock and roll tour that he always dreamed of doing since he was a teenager. So basically, this is what the book is about. And I gather you've, uh, you've got some, uh, some, some of the humorous quotes from the book as well. 
I have, yes. So he plans to start at Brighton and then goes to the Isle of Wight, Stonehenge Rock, Bath, Bristol, Cotswolds, Shropshire, Llandidno, Liverpool, Yorkshire, Newcastle, Edinburgh, Ullapool, and then Cape Wrath, where they say he can come and do a concert. So he's thinking, wow, they really want me to do a concert, not just two or three songs, and it's at the Smoo Cave. <laughs> so he tells his wife all about it. A concert, said my wife. Why not? She didn't want to tell me the truth. In front of people you don't know. My plan is to improve as I go along. You don't think this is a young man's activity. Bob Dylan's 70. Bob Dylan started playing when he was a teenager. So did I. She could see she wasn't going to get anywhere down this track. She said, it's hard when the children leave. You're bound to feel at a loss when he's in that empty nest stage of his life. I'm not at a loss. A rock and roll tour is something I've always wanted to do. How can you rock and roll on a ukulele? I'll show you. No, 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 it's all right. I believe you. You think it's a midlife crisis, don't you? No, you're too old for a midlife crisis. <laughs> so these, these lovely gems of conversation like this, in between uh, some lovely descriptions of all these places that I've mentioned. Well, you know, I lived up north for a while. I know Edinburgh very well. I know Cape Wrath, in fact. I know Wales um, and Brighton and... And to have a book beside me on a desert island would really be very good for reminding me of those things. And uh, but he had so 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 many funny experiences. Well, that's great. You've got the relatability angle, as you said, um, as well as your obvious love of music and humour. So it's Mark Wallington. The name of the book again? The Uke of Wallington. The Uke of Wallington. Thank you very much, Edwina, um, for your first choice. I like the sound of that. And what about book number two, then? What have we got for uh, the second choice? I mentioned how much I enjoyed creative writing and poetry. I love reading poetry. So there has to be a poetry book in my selection. This one is called Mary Wilson, Selected Poems. Okay. Mary Wilson was the wife of Prime Minister Harold Wilson. And this selection has been made by herself from those she has written over the years. She was a prolific writer of poetry. And when I opened this book, I realised just what a wonderful poet she was. I mean, certainly... You might say that she was in her husband's shadow from a public point of view and the very opposite to his very extrovert character, charismatic prime minister that he was. Uh, she was very quiet and very sensitive. And these reflections of hers are very quiet and sensitive. And the beauty of them is that they are so approachable. So a lot of people think poetry perhaps is quite intimidating. I mean, there's a lot of deep poetry around and, you know, 
sometimes you read it three or four times through and you think, what on earth is this about? And in the end, you know, if you know the writer, you say, well, will you tell me what it's about, please? <laughs> um, this isn't like that. And I'd say it's a lovely book for anybody to have. And so it's more accessible. Very accessible and very beautiful. Um, she loved Silly Isles. And in fact, I went on a holiday to the Silly Isles and I actually did uh, find uh, Harold Wilson's gravestone. Uh, Mary Wilson was still alive then. This was 2014 and she was 97 years old. All right, wow. And I believe that she died about 2018, 2017, 2018, something like that. And the hotel where I stayed, the Atlantic Hotel, uh, I was told that she actually came in there once a week and had a coffee morning with her friends. And those of us that had gone on holiday there, we'd only just missed her because she'd gone back to London. And I, So it was after that uh, uh, that my cousin actually gave me this book when I told him about it. And I thought, oh, I would love to have met her. Mm. So the best way to describe how marvellous this book is is just to reflect on just three of her short poems, which I'd like to do. Please do. So these are very personal poems. And her first poem is about her ambition to write and why she wants to. And it's very short. She says, If I can write before I die one line of purest poetry or crystallise for all to share a thought unique, a moment rare, within one sentence clear and plain then I shall not have lived in vain I thought that was beautiful and certainly a hook to find out what else was in the book absolutely yeah very uh, very succinct but uh, it, it does make you think a lot that one and so that's how her poems are. They're short. And that means that you can read them again. You, you might put the, way, a book, the, put the book away for a while. And then when you read them again, you, you might read them perhaps not all. You might want to linger over them a bit more because the more you read poems, the, the more you see into them. And she needs a quiet space. And through the books, you, uh, through the book, you can see actually just how much she hated politics, and longed for a quiet space. And I thought, well, if I'm going to be on a desert island, I could poss I would probably be empathising with that for, at least for a little while. So, she writes this story, and I and I wondered, I wondered uh, as I read this story in the poem. If, in fact, she was thinking of the Silly Isles when she wrote it. It's called The House at the Edge of the Wood. Mm -hmm. Sometimes, as I struggle through a crowded room, thick with tobacco and whiskey fumes, and vapid voices shrilling high in one continuous parrot cry, suddenly I can see it there. I can see the bluebells, can smell the air, and the evening sunlight slants in lines across my house at the edge of the pines. 
and a heavenly healing silence falls upon my soul and the caging walls melt and the clanging voices die and we are alone my house and I somehow someday I shall be free to go to the place where it waits for me forever and ever my house has stood and all its windows face the wood very evocative and finally this is the last poem in her book and this book was first published in 1970 Mm -hmm. now she would have met by then as a prime minister's wife she is bound to have met the astronauts that landed on the moon Neil Armstrong Buzz Aldrin who landed on the moon in July 1969 So her last poem is, in fact, The Lunar Nought. And I was fascinated by this poem because there's so much that I could personally see into it myself. And I thought, well, if you're on the moon, it's a desert island experience once again. I thought it really was very apt. The Lunar Nought. What did the Earth look like, I asked him, as you stood there on the moon? Bright, he said, fantastically bright, brighter than any moonlit night, a shining orb of dazzling light. And we could see the countries clear as day, though miles of atmosphere between us lay, and home and friends and loves were far away. I found that most interesting, the fact that we don't really think about our world very much, but someone looking at it from the outside and it's blazing, it's wonderful, it's dazzling. How can we possibly take that for granted? How how can we possibly not think of climate change and saving it and all those wonderful things? And, And he's in this quiet place above the earth. And perhaps he needed to be in this quiet place for whatever reason, as she wanted her house at the edge of the wood. But when you get that quiet place and you get what you wish for, you then start thinking of, oh dear, I'm missing all my family, my friends, those I love, that they're all back at home, oh dear, and I'm on my own out here. (laughs) Have you ever seen that iconic photo, uh, probably the first, well, I think the first one that was taken from the moon, looking at the Earth, Um, and it's it's stunning. As you say, it's, you you, you see our world in a completely different uh, light, and uh, perceive us, as you say, from uh, as something remote from where you are. Yes. It's just it's so thought-provoking and so beautiful. And the perspective that you get on things when you're looking at something that is much bigger than you are. You know, I mean, the desert island I'm thinking of is, is, a, is a pretty one, but there's the ocean all around me, and there's just... It's unending. You can't see beyond the horizon, and it's just totally unending. Um, And I've had the desert island very much in my mind as I've chosen these books. They've got to be compatible with being stranded on a desert (laughs) island. (laughs) Yes, it sounds like I could could feel the sand is stuck between my toes right now. (laughs) Um, Lovely. Mary Wilson then and uh, Selected Poems. Thank you for uh, sharing that with us.
uh, Edwina, and uh, we move on then to your third choice. I enjoy light reading. I do enjoy uh, the classics, the intellectual stuff, but if I'm on a desert island, I don't want my brain to have to work too hard. I mean, the poetry will do that for me. Um, So this book is a, a really light read, and I would say this is a girly book, quite honestly, but it has some lovely ideas. It's called The Keeper of Lost Things, and it's the first novel of a lady called Ruth Hogan. And the book is about, obviously, the keeper of lost things, who is a writer. So, you know, I love writing, I love music, so a book about a musician, this is, second book is about a writer. Called Anthony Perdue, and he spent half his life collecting lost objects trying to atone for a promise broken many years before. What has actually happened is that the love of his life died when they were both young. Mm -hmm. And she had given him a little present because he made her a rose garden. And she loved the garden so much as a way of thanking him, she gave him a little medal that was given to her when she took her first Holy Communion. Mm -hmm. And she said, look after this, wherever you are, wherever I am, it will always remind you how much I love you. And it's binding, we'll be together forever. On the day she died, and she was only young, he lost it. Mm. And he was devastated because he'd really broken a promise. He, he He wasn't gonna keep it forever and he hadn't looked after it he'd lost it so he was a changed man and so at the start of the book he is now old in fact he's died (laughs) okay that's pretty old (laughs) so he leaves his house and all its lost things that he's collected over the lifetime to his assistant laura uh, she was his personal assistant and housekeeper herself with a sad background when she comes to the story she's in a doctor's surgery with really mental, a lot of mental health problems because of her husband's infidelity she's left him, she's in a mess and she picks up this advert and she goes and applies for this job to be Anthony's uh, housekeeper And he tells her there's one room you're not to go into, that's the study. And she's always wondered why she couldn't go in there. But anyway, he he leaves her this house and the study that at last she can go into Mm -hmm. after his death. Um, And it's all now in her capable hands. It's all hers. And he wants her to carry on this mission of keeping lost things and the idea is is that he's going to find the people who lost them so it's a fascinating read Laura had been lost hopelessly adrift kept afloat but barely by an unhappy combination of Prozac Pinot Grigio and pretending things weren't happening things like Vince's affair Anthony Perdue and his house had saved her 
As she pulled up and parked outside the house, she calculated how long she had worked there. Five, no, almost six years. So this was Laura's background. And this was the letter that Anthony Perdue had written to tell her all about his mission. I mean, because she thought that he was a strange old man. I mean, she got very fond of him, but why is this study lot? My dear Laura, I must tell you about the things in the study. Once again, it starts with the rose garden. On the day I planted it, Teresa gave me a gift. It was her first Holy Communion medal. She told me that it was to say thank you for the rose garden and to remind me that she would love me forever, no matter what. She made me promise to keep it with me always. It was the most precious thing I have ever owned and I lost it. On the day that Teresa died, I had it in my pocket that morning when I left Padua, that's the name of the house. Mm-hmm. But by the time I returned it, it was gone. It felt as though the last remaining thread that bound us together had been broken. Like a clock unwound, I stopped. So that's how he feels. And so every time he sees something lost, he very much feels that that lost possession would have affected that person, either deeply or just a little. And it does start you thinking about the own the things that we own and that we love and and our connections to them i mean i've still got my late husband's shaving mirror okay. i mean wh- why would anyone want to keep that but for me it's 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 a treasure you know yeah absolutely so anyway so laura sets about the task and all sorts of characters come up and when she's faced though with finding these lost things uh, and replacing them, to, uh, not replacing them, um, giving them back, I should say, to their owners. We find things like a lady's glove, navy blue, right hand, found on the grass verge at the foot of Low Bridge, 23rd of December. So who's lost that glove? Jigsaw puzzle, blue with white fleck, found in the gutter. Copper Street, 24th of September. How's she going to give that piece of the jigsaw puzzle back? Needs to be a detective. And finally, Child's Umbrella, white with red hearts, found at the Alice in Wonderland sculpture, Central Park, New York, 17th of April. Okay, she's got to go to America. <laughs> well, yes, you do. <laughs> there are loads and loads of things like that. And what Anthony Perdue has done in his story as, as a writer is that as he's engaged with every lost item, he's woven stories around them. And as he's connected uh, with the people in his imagination, and so he had inspiration for the rest of his life. And the interesting thing is that Laura starts to do the same. And at the end of the book, it begins exactly how it starts, with a certain opening sentence. Charles Bramwell Brockley was travelling alone and without a ticket on the 1442 from London Bridge to Brighton. This is at the beginning of the book. And as you read, you think Anthony Perdue has written it. But it's not. This is Laura's story. Uh And that's how the book finishes. And... 
she's got a broken heart and of course she finds her prince. So at the end of the story, the cursor on the screen in front of her winked encouragingly, the star sapphire ring on the third finger of Laura's left hand was still an unfamiliar wait as she lifted her hands to begin typing. Freddie, her fiancé of just three days, was in the kitchen making a lovely cup of tea. Laura was finally ready to chase her dream. She had found the perfect story and no one could describe it as being too quiet. It was a sweeping story of love and loss, life and death and above all, redemption. It was the story of a grand passion that it endured for over 40 years and finally found its happy ending because guess what? Laura found the medal. Aha! Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> well, lovely. Um, she would have had a, an awful lot of work to do in uh, my mum's house, I can tell you. <laughs> she would have needed several lifetimes. Well, I'll tell you what, you could write a book. <laughs> <laughs> I think, yeah, I don't know how long I've got left, but yeah. <laughs> Poems, maybe. Um, uh, or lyrics, in my case. But um, lovely, thank you. So, The Keeper of Lost Things by Ruth Hogan is your third choice. What about book number four, then? Now, this book I've actually brought in with me. Ooh. And you can just have a little glance at it. It's very pretty. I'm glancing right now. It's very pretty. It's beautiful. It's a lovely cover, yeah, sort of uh, creamy and uh, ornate writing. It's a purple inner sleeves. And that feels lovely. Oh, I'm going to have to have a... Yeah. This is great radio. It's oh, yes, that's, that's certainly a, a, a textured feel yeah. to the page. So it's a touchy-feely book. Oh, right, OK. And you always think that perhaps it's only children's books that are illustrated. Now, this has got beautiful, mm. beautiful, beautiful illustrations on every page. And also, there are beautiful quotations from the Bible. OK. So this is a book by a Christian writer. Now, if I'm going on a desert island... I want my luggage to be light. Mm. Bibles can be quite heavy. Right. And this will remind me of everything that I need that's that's in the Bible. And, you know, my Christian faith has helped me right through my life, through the good times, through the bad times. And I can imagine myself probably getting a little bit fed up with that desert island from time to time. And needing something like this. Mm -hmm. But... It's so, so accessible. And I actually met the author. The book's called In My Father's Vineyard by Wayne Jacobson. Mm -hmm. Now, he is an American writer, church leader. Right. And he's written a lot of books. I think he's been involved in video and filmmaking. And he did visit a church in Nottingham, Bramcote in fact, that I went to for a few years, not on any kind of tour, but he was the friend of the person that led the church, the pastor, in Mm -hmm. fact. And he was a lovely, lovely man. Um, He talked to us as a church and we talked to him individually and he was just so down to earth And he'd written this lovely book, and I most definitely decided that I wanted a copy. So this is really a book about nature. 
-hmm. He was the son of a Californian grape farmer. And his father grew grapes to be sold as raisins. So he was brought up on a farm in California and spent a lot of time working in the vineyard. And in the Bible, there's a lot of references to vines and vineyards. Yeah. And very often it reflects life experiences. And also, if you work on a vineyard, it certainly builds your character because it's very, very tough. And he also compares our lives to the seasons. And there's a lot of lessons to be learned and a, a lot of guidance over that. And so he talks of the spring, the summer, the winter, and autumn in the vineyard, and also the springtime, the summer, autumn of our lives. And springtime doesn't necessarily have to mean when we're young. It can mean perhaps when we are engaging on a new product, uh, sorry, project, yeah. feeling a bit vulnerable, warning you perhaps not to share it too early and rush things. He says this, a burst of springtime. This is called this chapter. Mm -hmm. Grapevines are never the first to herald spring. The white blossoms of the almond tree and the vivid pink of the peaches break out much sooner. The vine takes its time, not willing to send out its tender buds until the danger of frost is far past. While other fruit trees are trumpeting their glory, the only change observed on the vine, and for this you will have to look closely, is the swelling of its buds. Then one day, as if on cue, the vines suddenly explode into new life. Looking down the vineyard row, you can see the faintest tint of green as the leaves curl out of the broken bud and aim skyward. The tender, pliable shoots are in an iridescent green, almost transparent. Once begun, the vines grow eagerly, watered by the spring rains and coaxed out by the ever-warming sun. Soon a bright green canopy crowns the rows of vines. Spring has come to the vineyard and the forces of fruitfulness have begun their long and steady march to produce sweet, succulent grapes. Every leaf is fresh and clean, spreading out to catch the sunshine. Underneath the tiny white blossoms emerge, promising a bountiful harvest. But later he goes on to say, but as glorious as the days of spring are, they are also a time of danger, a late frost, a freak hailstorm, or an assault of weeds or insects can spell a quick end to a promised harvest. And you know, the ups and downs of life can be a bit like that. And I think if I'm on a desert island and I'm having one of those days and I'm thinking, what on earth am I, am I doing here? And it's a barren place and there's nothing growing and I'm not doing anything. How nice to have a book like this because it really does cheer me up some, uh, sometimes when I'm feeling low. So this is a must. Grounding and uh, full of metaphor. Um, yes. Palm trees on my desert island. 
by the way. So oh, okay. I'm okay with that. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Not grapevines. No. Apparently they're twisty and gnarled and strange-looking things. <laughs> That's okay. I have nothing, no, no prejudices against grapevines grape at all. Um, lovely. So In My Father's Vineyard by Wayne Jacobson. And as you were saying, you've, you've, uh, you've met the author yourself. So um, that is your fourth choice, which takes us to... Uh, number five. So the last of your um, books that you you know and love, and uh, we will have an extra opportunity for you to uh, to name a book that you haven't read yet uh, that you can take onto your desert island. But first of all, what is the fifth book? Listen to the Moon by Michael Morpurgo. Mm-hmm. How can anyone not have a book with them by Michael Morpurgo? Yes, he writes children's books, but adults love him as much as they like J.K. Rowling. You know, adults read Harry Potter, adults read Michael Morpurgo. And in fact, when I finished this book, I wanted to find out all about it and why he wrote it. And all the reviews were by adults. I mean, perhaps children aren't allowed to write reviews. I don't know. But I was amazed by how many adults had read this book. It actually is aimed at 11-year-olds and older. Mm-hmm. It would have to be a very deep-thinking, sensitive 11-year-old mm-hmm. to read this, because it is, in fact, a very deep vo- book, and it's got so, so many twists and turns. And this is this is the difficult bit. You know, I could talk for this book for a couple of hours. It's so fascinating. Um but I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about it, and uh, I mustn't miss the key points out, but it's so, so clever, and it's poignant, and it's tragic, and it's funny, and, you know, most of us know Warhorse. He writes so sensitively about grief and tragedy. Um, his subject is frequently World War One. And this is set in World War One too, as is Private Peaceful and one or two others. And one thing about Michael Morpurgo is that he's very, very good at writing to tell children about very difficult subjects like death and trauma. And he does it so beautifully and in such an engaging way. But... There's a lesson there for adults too. I mean, in the end, I think adults are just big kids and there's there's a child in yep. us. So I make no apologies for reading children's books. I, I <laughs> do it all the time. <laughs> so, Listen to the Moon. May 1915. On an uninhabited island in the Scillies... Alfie and his father find an injured girl, alone, and with no memory of who she is, or how she came to be there. She can speak only one word, Lucy. Is she a mermaid, a ghost, or could she even be a German spy? Lucy cannot speak to tell them. Only one thing is for sure. She loves music. And most of all, she loves the moon. As World War I rages and suspicion and fear grow, Alfie and Lucy are ever more under threat. 
But Alfie never loses hope, just as Lucy never stops gazing at the moon. It's almost as if she's listening to it, as if it is telling her something she since she once knew. So it starts with an air of mystery. And this poor child is found in a very desolate place. I mean, first I was drawn to the book because it was in the Scilly Isles. And I've been there, I've had a wonderful holiday there. And, you know, there's so much history, so much sadness, so many shipwrecks, lives lost at sea. You know, they're dangerous seas. You wouldn't think so when you see them on a lovely day. Um, you go to the churchyard, not only do you find Harold Wilson's graves, but young men that have died at sea and all sorts mm. of things. And there's a desolate island there called St Helens, and that's uninhabited. And back in Victorian times, sick sailors were sent there and abandoned. You know, those with cholera who might infect other people and other such illnesses. I mean, there was a hospital there, um, so they got some help, but basically they didn't really come home again. Mm. And it was called the Pest House. It was generally known as the Pest House. Now, this little girl was found on this island and she was wild and frantic and she was clearly injured, injured. she was half-starved. The little boy had bunked off school to go fishing with his father, a sort of conspiritual thing, don't tell your mother, you know. And the, the weather had changed and the child heard this wailing and they thought it was a ghost, they were frightened. Um, but they rescued her. And, I mean, it's, it's unspeakably sad. And the family take her in and they look after and they love her, but she won't speak. She's obviously had a terrible trauma she can't even speak and then one day she says one word and she whispers it to Alfie Lucy just Lucy so they think it's her name they call her Lucy Lost they get the doctor and he realizes how serious it is and he this is 1915 but he instinctively decides to play her some classical music and she responds to this lovely music. She loves it. And then eventually they find out that she plays the piano and she plays very well. And during this time, you start to get a backstory as well, the things that are in her head. She is, in fact, a little girl called Mary, as in Merry Christmas, rather mm -hmm. than Mary. And she travelled on the Lusitania. Now, the Lusitania was attacked and sunk by German bombs. Mm -hmm. And this was a passenger ship carrying civilians. I mean, it was a war crime. And when the, islands, when the islanders start to hear a little bit more of her story, they're convinced that she's a German spy, just pretending that she was shipwrecked off the Lusitania. And what actually happens is that Alfie's family start to be threatened and shunned by the rest of the island. You know, they're superstitious. Oh, she's a ghost. She's a mermaid. Um, and their fear of the war. And, you know, you, you, you realise that people that live on island, islands like the Scillies, there's all sorts of old wives' tales and stories, and they really do think that she's a bad omen. Mm. 
Um, but in the end, um, or as we go along, we find that she is on the Lusitania because she's going to Europe with um, a nurse, a guide, to find her father. Her mother has died, so she's already lost her mother, but her father is fighting in the war. And, she, and she's already had a letter from him before she boards the Lusitania, saying this. At night I see the moon riding high through the dark clouds. I sing to the moon and I listen to the moon as I promised. I hope you do too. Do not worry about me. Be sure we shall in time win this war and then I shall be home and we shall be together again. And in that part of the book, it goes on to say that she feels close to her father because she knows if she's listening to the moon and looking at it, then he's doing the same. And so if they're both looking at the moon, they're not so far apart. Such a lovely book. Mm. So in the end, this is what we find out about Mary. So she's not Lucy at all. And the story ends very happily because Alfie and Mary, when they grow up, they get married. And the person who is telling the story is their grandson. And he's telling the story how his grandmother told it to him from a tape recorder. You know, And there's so much more in the book. So, so much more. And, but you know, I thought, right, I I always go onto um, YouTube and Wikipedia to find out a little bit more. And Michael Morpurgo is an author who is always inspired by real-life events. Mm-hmm. And there's always just a few little snapshots that will trigger his imagination. And he had read somewhere that in the wake of the... Lusitania disaster seen off the coast of Ireland close to Kinsale was an, a floating grand piano and on top of that grand piano was a girl clinging to it Wow uh, and that was what sparked his story off together with history that he had found out about the Lusitania and in fact the sailors aboard the Lusitania referred to the ship as the Lucy and when that poor girl said one word she was trying to tell them I was on the Lucy and they thought it was her name so all these twists and wonderful turns and it really is a fantastic book very powerful and uh, as you said, it was written for maybe eleven-year-olds and upwards, but um, you might need to have quite a resilient eleven-year-old to 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 mm. deal with some of the the themes in it. But there's there's clearly some light in there as well. Oh yes, and of course, she's on this terrible desert island, a horrendous desert island, a, a desert island with a history, and the you know the locals all thinking, well, there are only ghosts in that place. Yeah. tortured souls in that place you know and can't be any good someone coming from there this kind of thing I actually loved the book so much I bought it for my granddaughter when she was 11 she didn't like it 
She read it when she was 16 and absolutely loved it. Mm, yeah. Um, thank you. So that's Michael Morpurgo and Listen to the Moon. Um, so that's your five for your desert island. And you've thought very, very carefully, haven't you, about the whole desert island thing, uh, as you've uh, you indicated with, with each of your selections in different ways. Um, now, as I mentioned, you're entitled to one more book that you haven't read yet. So uh, what's the extra that you're going to take with you? The Book Woman of Troublesome Creek. This is by an American author, Kim Michelle Richardson. And this is fasc fascinating because this is also um, historical fiction mm -hmm. based on events in the 1930s. In the 1930s in America, uh, Roosevelt developed certain programs um, so that marginalised people and those who lived out in really quite wild places had access to books. Mm -hmm. So, not a desert island this time, but a similar thing, up in the Appalachian Mountains. And so there was a project that was called the Pack Horse Library. And women rode on horseback into the, from Kentucky up into the Appalachian Mountains to deliver, to deliver books to the uh, communities that lived out there. Well, they were a superstitious lot as well, not unlike the islanders um, at Scilly. Mm -hmm. One of these librarians had blue skin. Um, and this is what it says on the back. I haven't got very far with this at all. The folks of Troublesome Creek have to scrap for everything. Everything except books, that is. Thanks to Roosevelt's Kentucky Pack Horse Library Project, Troublesome's got its very own travelling librarian, Cussie Mary Carter. Cussie's not only a bookwoman, however, She's also the last of her kind. Her skin a shade of blue, unlike most anyone else. Not everyone is keen on Cuss's family or the government's new book programme. And along her treacherous route, Cussie faces doubters at every turn. If Cussie wants to bring the joy of books to the complex and hard scrabble Kentuckians, she's going to have to confront dangers and prejudice as old as the Appalachians and suspicion as deep as the holler. Inspired by the true blue-skinned people of Kentucky and the brave and dedicated Kentucky Packhorse Library service of the 1930s, The Bookwoman of Troublesome Creek is a story of raw courage, fierce strength, and one woman's belief that books can carry us anywhere, even back home. No wonder I want books on my desert island if I can get back home. Um, there was really a blue-skinned family. Mm. Um, I've got as far as looking that bit up. And they died out. I mean, they, they had very blue skin, really blue. And it turned out that this was um, a genetic disorder mm. of the blood that turned the skin blue. In fact, their blood was 
not red like ours, it was brown. And so horrified were other people that this family stuck together and really they were, they inbred, um, basically to ensure that the disease was eradicated. So Cussie is a fictional character, but as the last ancestor, as we hear, um, this American author has done a lot of historical research and and uh, found out a lot about these people. And I found pictures on Wikipedia of this particular family. They were they were the Fugate family, and uh, their skin is very very blue. So. Again, it's about culture, it's about prejudice, it's about surviving against all the odds. And books like that inspire me. Yeah, it, uh, it's reflected in your choices. There's um, a lot of interest in, in culture and, uh, and that, that pursuit of, of um, things like understanding and, and identity. So, uh, the book woman of Troublesome Creek, and who was, what was the writer's name again? The author's name? Kim Michelle Richardson. Kim Michelle Richardson. That sounds like you've uh, got plenty to get your teeth into there with that one as uh, your unknown, but uh, that's quite a selection uh, for your desert island. You, you're well equipped um, for your time there. You've got uh, humour and, and lots of uh, thought-provoking material as well and uh, a lot of creativity as you have yourself thank you so much for all of those uh, edwina and um really enjoyed listening to your uh, your sort of reasons behind each choice uh you know it's nhr nottingham hospitals radio and we love to play music for people as well so would you like to offer a musical dedication to our listeners um as part of your desert island books yes i would well you can see from my selection that i do like wild places i mean i always had an ambition to visit iceland Ooh. and uh i mean my mum thought i was absolutely crazy what on earth do you want to go there for i mean you know when i chose scotland to study what do you want to go up there for well Edinburgh wasn't exactly wild, but I mean, when I was up there, I decided I wanted to find the wild and woolly places, as they say. Um, <laughs> and I did, in fact, manage to get as far as the Shetland Islands. I went right to the top one, which has the furthest northerly post office in, uh, in Great Britain, and that's on the Isle of Unst. And I, I've, I've visited that post office and, you know... It, Shetland can be a very wild place. Anyway, I'm digressing a little bit, but um, I've chosen this piece because it is on a wild coastline of Scotland, and I've been up there, and it's called Mull of Kintyre by Paul McCartney and Wings. Thank you very much. That's a choice I'm going to enjoy as a forest fan, but that's a different story. <laughs> <laughs> Desert Island Books on NHR in association with NUH Library Services. <laughs>